Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. Today is 7-11-2020, and I'm recording this on a Saturday afternoon. So let's get started and uh, recall that I'm giving this lecture because, as I've said, I have nothing better to do. So what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit more clinical synthesis of our discussions of proteases and a very little bit about protease inhibitors as potential pharmaceutical, pharma, pharmacotherapeutic um, agents to control a disease that's on some people's minds these days, which is uh, the virus, the uh, coronavirus. So, and there's a paper that was published very recently that we're going to talk about. So let's just get right into it. Again, I'm Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry. Please go to the show notes and check out my Patreon. Please consider, first of all, subscribing to this podcast. Please do that because it'll help me uh, build up uh, more people listening to it because uh, I have it on multiple platforms. And also, please join my Patreon. Consider donating some money to this cause because I'm trying to give as many uh, lectures as I can. And I would really like to um, do more of them. And I, I'm not going to stop regardless, but I really could use uh, some... Um, you know, some financial input. That would be really cool. Okay, so let's get right back into this. Remember I was talking to you about from a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Investigations, the insight of it. Uh, it's an insight part of that journal, 2020, uh, published in June of this year. And I told you that the clinical manifestation of the disease associated with infection by what's known as the severe acute respiratory syndrome, that's called the SARS-CoV-2, presents as a severe cold symptom with viral pneumonia, rarely progresses to acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, but it can, and then you get multi-organ failure in some individuals. So elevated serum neutrophils in SARS was proposed as an early biomarker and an early indicator of infection of the SARS-CoV-2, typically associated with a severe respiratory distress in which, of course, there were a sequelae of pathophysiological manifestations, including the production of what we introduced last time, neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs. Remember, the NETs have been found in various thromboinflammatory states, including sepsis, thrombosis, respiratory failure, uh, cystic fibrosis, um, COPD, and ARDS, just to name a few. So very common cause of morbidity and mortality in humans every year, particularly in the United States. There are hundreds of thousands of deaths associated with respiratory distress syndrome every year in the U.S. Keep that in mind. So nets, of course, are extracellular webs of DNA, histones, so that makes it chromatin, essentially. Microbiocidal proteins, remember, one of those are the myeloperoxidase. Um, and of course the proteases. And then there are these oxidant enzymes and they're all released by the neutrophils. They work to diminish infection. Remember neutrophils are innate immune cells. And when regulation is lost, the nets can initiate and propagate an inflammatory response and thrombosis and actually be very dangerous to the person with that hyper immune response. So indeed, inhibition of neutrophils and nets is protective in various models of flu associated ARDS 
And there's even emerging evidence implicated inflammatory cytokines. And we talked about those. They're looking one beta, they're looking six, and all of that we've seen in the COVID-19 presentation. Other pandemic viruses, including the influenza H1N1, the SARS, which we've been talking about, the MERS, that's the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, all those are associated with neutrophilic infiltration in the lung and development of some kind of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. So the acute exudative phase of ARDS is characterized by what could be called a massive immune response, producing pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, increased neutrophil infiltration and accumulation in the alveoli. And I told you that causes that disruption of that AECB or alveolar epithelial capillary barrier. Concomitant induction of acid sphingomyelinase producing the pro-apoptotic ceramide. Remember the subspecies of apoptosis there is necrotosis and veritosis. That's going to produce a, a super inflammatory response and it's going to cause a lot of tissue damage and a lot of cell death, including the epithelial cells in the lung. And that's all associated with the membrane raft trafficking that was associated with ceramide causing apoptosis. I told you about a paper published in the Frontiers of Immunology that talked about these nets and that normally people consider the nets being functional against microorganisms, so not viruses. Viruses are not microorganisms. And I told you that these net nets have uh, myeloperoxidase and they have the enzyme elastase, right? There are also a couple of other serine proteases. We mentioned them. Remember, one of the major ones was cathepsin, right? Um, we told you there's a pathogenic role. This paper started talking about that four years ago. So we've known about nets for quite a long time. And we know that net formation is reported in several pulmonary diseases, that's diseases associated with the lung, including chronic diseases like asthma, COPD, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cystic fibrosis, as I said. And then uh, there was one virus, there is one virus that is associated, particularly young children, it's respiratory syncytial virus. And there's a bronchiolitis that's associated with that. I also mentioned influenza, bacterial pneumonia, and indeed even tuberculosis has this NET, NET association. Now, there was a paper published very recently in Physiological Review. In fact, you're not going to see this paper until October, but I get a pre-look uh, at it. So this is a letter to the editor of the upcoming October edition of Physiological Reviews. And the letter is actually a commentary on another paper which talks about elevated plasmin and plasminogen as a common risk factor in COVID-19 susceptibility. So that's going to end up being Physiological Review uh, 100. That's the uh, volume, pages 1065 to 1075, published 2020. Commentary, though, is by Alan Theory, and that was that's published on the 8th of July. That's what I'm reading about. So it's been three days since this letter has been published. Now, what does he say? He says in this COVID-19 associated paper, I'm paraphrasing here a bit, but basically what this paper talks about, there's evidence that elevated plasmin, plasminogen, remember that's associated, what? Those are serine proteases, right? Can be involved in a bio, as a biomarker and perhaps even functional precondition 
in SARS, and particularly SARS-CoV-2. It was known to accumulate also, as this author suggests, in hypertension, type 2 diabetes, various forms of CVD or cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular diseases, chronic renal illnesses, and indeed, it's been observed that this plasminogen increases the pathogenicity in some clinical cases of COVID-19. So that neutrophil extracellular trap, the NETs, you know now, play a key role in COVID-19 pathogenesis. The NETs promote, as we've been saying, from papers published way many years ago now, just bring it up to this month, it promotes extensive inflammation and tissue damage, and it's composed of, the NETs are composed of proteases, protease inhibitors too, to suppress the response when it's functioning correctly. Sphingolipid, including sphingomyelin and ceramide, and glucosyl ceramide, uh, cytosolic proteins like the myeloperoxidase that we talked about. DNA is also associated with these nets. Uh, and you also have histone proteins we're talking about, H3FTP. Nets, what they do is they limit blood-borne microbes typically by trapping them. That's why they're called a net. They trap them mechanically. And then they exploit the coagulant function to segregate them within the circulation. That's what they do to invading bacteria, okay? So now there's a problem, obviously. What are we talking about here? A lack of net suppression, which would be given by something like alpha-1 antitrypsin, right? Remember we talked about the uh, antitrypsins, the serpents now, serine protease inhibitors. A lack of net suppression by serpents after activation and the consecutive release of net contents can induce thrombosis and fibrinolysis. These are all associated sequelae of the uh, clinical manifestation of all those diseases I mentioned to you, all those pulmonary diseases as a precondition before COVID-19 infection, okay? So a lack of suppression can then induce that negative response. You get a coagulation of associated innate immune responses with cytokines and chemokines, as I always say, both pro-inflammatory type. And of course, they're activated during venous and arterial thrombus formation. That's a little plasma plasminogen uh, discussion. And there's a progression of that whole phenomenon where the platelet neutrophil interaction is at the site of the deep vein thrombosis formation. It induces what's known as netosis, right, the breakdown of the nets, and then you get thrombogenesis, right? So it's not a good physiological state at all. It can cause uh, an acute respiratory distress response. It can actually cause very severe morbidity and even mortality in some cases. So we talked about the NE, that's the neutrophil elastase DNA complex. And those are in the nets, and they play a central role in that mechanism because it results in severe fibrinolytic failure. And the, the neutrophil elastase forms a tight complex with DNA that strongly impairs its inhibition because it's bound to the DNA. And this is more of an electrostatic interaction. Um, you can't get inhibited by the alpha-1 protease inhibitor. Okay, so that's what's going on there with all that DNA. 
That's how the neutrophil elastase non-specifically then turns to degrade plasminogen, but it doesn't generate plasmin because it has the wrong substrate specificity. So plasminogen is indeed a serine protease, but esterase is also a serine protease, but of a different substrate uh, activity, okay? So it, because of that, you get plasminogen breakdown, but you don't generate plasma, so you don't get rid of the fibrin clot. So nets are basically a platform for neutrophil elastase-mediated extra activation and intravascular coagulation. Now, with regard to the interactions with plasmin itself with the nets, the serine proteases, of course, thrombin and plasmin also interact with DNA and they're bound to the nets, okay? So thrombin can induce neutrophil chemotaxis and aggregation at even submicromolar concentrations. Moreover, plasmin that was generated by plasminogen has been shown to cause neutrophil aggregation and adhesion to the endothelial surface in vivo and in vitro, even at submicromolar concentrations. This is all fully established in the disease presentation we call ARDS and COPD. So there's a great deal of overlap of these diseases. These common respiratory distress syndrome diseases, which cause health, uh, healthy people to become extremely ill and a high level of mortality in the nation. Several tens of thousands, up to 100,000 people die from complications of ARDS and COPD every year in the United States. Okay. So I want you to, again, remember that. Now, reminding you, neutrophil serine proteases like the NE and the Cadepsin G are depotent proteases. And remember, they're formed during the pro-myelocytic phase of neutrophil maturation. They're, they're called granulocytes where they come out of the azurophilic granules. Neutrophil activation is caused by TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, that's a pro-inflammatory cytokine. And we also told you platelet activating factor, which again has got to be associated with the whole blood clotting mechanism we just went through. Uh, interleukin A. Remember that alpha-1 antitrypsin is a well-recognized inhibitor of the neutrophil serine proteases, and that includes the uh, NE, that's the neutrophil elastase, but also PR3 and, of course, Cadepsin G at very low levels, right? We talked about this, submicromolar. Okay, so they're one-to-one suicide inhibitors, the, the uh, serpin with the serine protease, one-to-one. So, paper published in the American Journal of Physiology, Lung Cell Molecular Physiology in 2018, January edition of that, volume 14, pages L206 to 214, tells us the following. Sphingolipid metabolism, of course, is linked to increased inflammation, including the neutrophil elastase-mediated pathways in the airway. In the mouse model, looking at neutrophil elastase, oropharyngeal aspiration-linked neutrophil 
elastase-induced airway inflammation and increased synthesis of ceramide species. That's all in the mouse model. And they did an analysis of the sphingolipids in this paper in the BALF. Remember, that's the bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. And they used reverse phase HPLC and they, and they used electron spray tandem mass spec. So the BALF total and differential counts, the chemokine CXCL1 to keratinocyte ratio, the chemoattractant also was measured, protein levels of the various proteins like the proteases we just talked about and the um, antiproteases. Also a protein called high mobility group box one or HMGB1, which I talked about a couple of months ago. All of those were determined. Uh, the elastase, neutrophil elastase exposure increased this bronchoalveolar lavage fluid level of long chain ceramides, total cells and neutrophil counts, and it upregulated those two other proteins. Also, it altered the ratio of the chemokine to the keratinocytes, chemoattractant. So the ratios matter here. The transcript messenger RNA levels and protein levels of serine palmitoyl transferase, SPT, long chain subunits one and two, which of course is a multimeric enzyme that is at the de novo synthesis pathway for ceramide and ultimately sphingolipids in general, was also analyzed. And it looks like in this paper, in this mouse model, the elastase in increased lung SPT, long chain subunit two protein levels, but not SPTLC1, subunit one. But they had no effect on transcript. Thus, it is not a transcriptional increase. It is a post-transcriptional or at least translational, post-translational increase in the enzyme. Remember, the SPT enzyme is serine palmitoyl transferase, rate limiting staphylococcus synthesis of ceramide. So they want to assess whether the novo ceramide synthesis was required for the neutrophil elastase-induced inflammation. So they used a compound called muriosin, which is an SPT inhibitor. And they administered it intraperitoneally two hours before they administered the elastase. Okay. Now, this inhibitor of SPT, this myriosin, M-Y-R-I-O-C-I-N, the drug, decreased the BAL 18-1 to 22-colon-1 and 18-1 to 24-colon-1 ceramide levels. So those are ratios. So it decreased the oleal to the docosahexanoil ratio and the oleal to the 24-colon-1 ratio. Okay? Now, why is that significant? because the shorter chain ceramides are more pro-inflammatory, okay? So when you knock down those ratios uh, that were induced by exposure, okay, just the synthesis of those were, were induced by the exposure of using the neutrophil elastase, and that suggests there's a feed-forward cycle going on with the elastase. It generates a ceramide, the ceramide drives cytokine signaling, it then becomes an induction for more net production, okay? So it's a feed-forward mechanism with ceramide playing both sides of the aisle, okay? 
So it's possible that a target for all of this would be at the level of ceramide synthesis, something we've been talking about, ethnic biochemistry on all these discussions of proteases for a full month now, okay? So we're getting all the way back to when we started this arc of antitrypsin and proteases, remember the serine proteases. Now I'm showing you that all these papers are starting to come together, which was my original idea to, to get you into the nitty gritty of the biochemistry and then ultimately pull you all the way back out and get you into the clinic. Okay, and that's what we've been doing. So now you know why I've done it in more precise detail to show you how all these pulmonary diseases are focused on the ceramide raft, the flotillins associated with it, and the induction of elastase, which can become, because of the formation of the nets, can become extracellular, thus inducing a hyperimmune response, bringing more neutrophils to the site of the, of the potential infection. Could be a bacterial infection or could be a viral entry point. And upon that induction, you get more ceramide and some of the ceramide starts inducing in the, uh, in the epithelial cells because it's capable of working intracellularly as well as extracellularly because it's induced because of either de novo synthesis of sphingomyelinase activity at the plasma membrane of epithelial cells, thus inducing the inflammatory type of program cell death, the necrotosis. And indeed, when iron's available, and there's a lot of iron available in the lungs because of the hemoglobin breakdown, ferritosis. Both of those are the kind of apoptosis that can yield a hyperimmune, hyperinflammatory response, causing more of a production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, generating more tissue damage, more tissue death. And that's exactly how this system works. That's why we call it feed forward. I'll give you one more paper here. I think there's only one more. It's from the American Journal of Respiratory Cell Molecular Biology. Two years ago, published 2018 in June, volume 58, at pages 717 to 726. Now, listen to what this paper says. The respiratory syncytial virus, that's RSV, is associated with enhanced progression of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Huh, virus associated with COPD, there you go. And it also is involved in exacerbation of COPD. But little is known about the role of interleukin-17 in that system. So this paper investigated the role of RSV infection in enhancing mucous cell hyperplasia and airspace enlargement in the lung, it's a mouse model, in the lungs of mice injured with the elastase in, uh, in conjunction with adding LPS, polysaccharide, and bacteria, okay? So the mice injured with the elastase LPS had enhanced or prolonged neutrophilic response to the RSV. So they have, a, they have an acute response to the respiratory syncytial virus because of the bacterial infection and because of the induction of the elastase from the neutrophils and lipopolysaccharide from the bacteria. So it all comes together in this pathophysiological system that's being functionally pushed forward because of the elastase activity. Okay. So that's all associated with decreased levels, 
which gives a decreased transcription of interferon 1. You also get chemokine CXCL5 and matrix metalloproteinase 9. In addition, the extent of the mucous cell hyperplasia, which is associated with COPD as well as with cystic fibrosis, and the mean weighted alveolar space were increased significantly in the lungs of the elastase LBS, LPS injured mice infected with the syncytial virus, compared with just the elastase LPS alone or the virus alone. So see, it took the elastase, the bacterial LPS, and then the production of interleukin-17 in conjunction, the elastase in conjunction with sphingomyelinase activity and ceramide production to give the most potent form of the COPD in this mouse model. Okay, So that's a really important thing to understand. So immunodepletion of interleukin-17 before viral infection diminished the syncytial viral driven mucous cell hyperplasia, which again is a presentation of COPD and airspace enlargement in the elastase LPS injured animals. That suggests to these authors in this paper from 2018, and it suggests to me too, because I read the paper and I looked at the data, that interleukin-17 can be a therapeutic target for that part of the presentation, mucous cell hyperplasia, which can cause severe chest congestion and difficulty in respiration and breathing, okay? And that's an idea, is to find antibodies against interleukin-17 from that paper. One more paper, I was kidding you, there's one more. This goes back to the July 8th, 2020 paper. Let's just finish this off and we're done, okay? I think I have time, let me check. Yes, we do, okay, here we go. Elastase-mediated activation of SARS-CoV-2 was originally reported way back in 2008. So we've known about this for a long time. Neutrophil granule bound elastase proteolytically degrades polypeptides from invading gram-negative bacteria. We know this plus host proteins of the extracellular matrix and collagen and of course elastin, right? And all this can lead to hyperinflammation, tissue degeneration associated with programmed cell death linked to ceramide production. Typically, alpha-1-AT, remember this, this is serpent, would suppress elastin as described in my previous lectures, but there is a dysregulation or hyperimmune response. The interaction between the inhibitor and proteases is lost. So the neutrophil elastase cleaves spike protein, and that cleavage directs viral entry from the cell surface rather than the cathepsin protease-mediated endosomal cell entry we talked about last two times. And when you, when you use the elastin on the spike protein, that greatly enhances the infectivity and transmission frequency. It does not do anything about virulence, only transmission with the spike protein. So elastase activates epithelial sodium channels. Okay, now that's really important. And the sodium channels seem to be linked to an increase in airway epithelial sodium transport, and then that results in sodium hyperabsorption, which you also see in CF, by the way, because there's a lack of chloride channel production because of mutations in CF, by the way. Reduced airway surface liquid height and a dehydrated mucus culminating in inefficient 
mucociliary clearance, just like CF, just like cystic fibrosis. Therefore, hyperactive elastase can overcome the alpha-1 AT, the trypsin inhibitor, because that one-to-one stoichiometry combined with an excess production of reactive oxygen leading to tissue degeneration. Once unregulated, the neutrophil elastase activity disturbs the function of the lung permeability barrier, induces the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines associated with ceramide, participates in that whole cytokine hyperinflammatory response, and that is one of the pathophysiological responses, pathobiochemical responses in the COVID-19. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.